Good afternoon from Southeast Asia. This will be volume or episode number two of the Southeast Asia Chronicles. At least that's what we're calling them now. <laughs> it's a really subject to change. Could, you know, what God, could be anything, could be changed every day. We don't know what the hell we're doing. We're just talking. Um, all tapes, all recordings are copyright 2023 by Stock Photos Worldwide.com. Um, let's see. To get to these, that's pretty much where you got to go. We don't have uh, we don't have these on alternate uh, domains. <coughs> Interesting. So Stock Photos Worldwide.com is where you got to go to get to these. You scroll down a ways, you find the link. Um, I'll I'll put it up near the top somewhere to make it a little more uh, easily noticeable because now it's buried down in some crap on that on the home page um okay if you listen to the last one i hope you did it set the foundation it set some groundwork for my experiences in the u.s why i got weary more than tired weary to the bone of the u.s um and why i left why I had wanted to leave for a long time. So I'm going to finish up that foundation, try to do it quickly, and then we're going to move on to the actual experience of going to Southeast Asia and when and why and how and what happened. You know, did I get raped by monkeys? Yeah. Yeah, I did. We'll go into that in minute painstaking detail. Raped. Yeah, it's very similar to being probed by aliens, but except they're monkeys, you know. Some aliens are monkey-like, you know. We, we got this whole, whole other series of, of podcasts, alienanalprobe.com. If you want to know, you know, more than you ever wanted to know about aliens, <clears throat> go there. Uh, we've got a collection of 9,400 cases, cases, reports. <laughs> you know, a lot of drunken, rambling bullshit. Um, in that series, and those things are everywhere around the world. You can find them anywhere. Alienanalprobe.com podcasts. Um, and we started out with 9,400 reports, <laughs> claims, theyclaim.com. Um, and we've gone through 1,400, now we're down to 8,000 reports. So we've, we've covered, we've picked apart 1,400 cases. Okay. Cases sounds like they have credibility. Well, they don't always or seldom. Or, you know, <laughs> a lot of bullshit in there. Um, and we weed it out, throw it away and pee on it. You know, give it the middle claw, stuff like that. The good ones we keep and we say, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, okay, Southeast Asia. Um, I think we finished up the last one with uh, our, just, just a tiny little smidge of our experiences in New Mexico. Um, we fled. We were told by essentially the FBI <clears throat> that the local police were going to kill us because we had been bucking the Mexican drug cartels, bucking them pretty hard, pressing pretty fucking hard. I, at that point in my life, I wasn't really afraid of anything or anybody. Um, and then I learned. I learned about America. And we fled New Mexico. We had a ranch there. We left. We just just left it. Just left it. Everything. 
animals, vehicles, everything. We took, uh, I think we took two vehicles, a couple of prized horses. Uh, we stored our little bit of valuables in a secret location and we fled the day after the FBI told us to get out. And we didn't go back for a long, long time, a year, I think, to, to get our stuff. We snuck in and got our stuff and snuck back out. Um, after New Mexico, we went to Arizona. We fled, you know, one day we made it over to Arizona. And we needed peace. Oh, God, we, we needed peace. Um, we, were, we needed peace and quiet. Try to collect our thoughts and figure out what the meaning of the world was. It was a very rough time. Uh, we got out of New Mexico unscathed, except for losing our ranch and everything we owned. Um, but no physical harm came to us. Uh, you know, that I was really surprised. I thought the, the, uh, I thought the cartels, I mean, that the police were the cartels. I thought that they would come at us by filing some kind of charge charges, some kind of trumped up bogus charges to put us in jail or do something. And they didn't do that. Kind of surprised me. They, <clears throat> they did hatch a plan to raid our our home and uh, kill us uh, and that's what the what the FBI told us um, that was going to happen in like three days and so we get out the next day um, anyway so we went to Arizona just to find a quiet place out in the woods and camp for a while um, that didn't turn out well uh, we camped in the middle of nowhere, south of Flagstaff, summer, beautiful, warm weather, just quiet, nice. We, just, we, just, I, we needed to, to off gas. We needed to purge some of the evil out of our, out of our psyches, out of our souls. Um, and we were out there, we were in one campsite for about two weeks. And it was in a national forest, fully, fully legal place to camp. And the first thing that happened was I saw a car go by one day, a bumpy, horrible, pretty much a four wheel drive road, but this little tiny sedan thing drove by, bumpity, bumpity, clankity, scraping, you know, slowly. And I didn't really, I didn't really look in it. I think there was one male driver, um, but it but it struck me it, it, it something something struck a little teeny thread into my soul, and I thought, well, that's odd, you know, that's just odd. It just it didn't belong there. Um, the male driver did not look at us as he went by, and we were only thirty feet off this, you know, road slash path. And uh, we had a big campsite there. We had the horse trailer and horses and we, you know, a lot of stuff. Anybody would have looked. Any, you couldn't help it. Uh, and this guy didn't. And I didn't, as suspicious as my mind was, I didn't put any meaning to it at that time. I just registered it. Um, and he drove on by and he's gone. It turned out later, once we finally went back to town, it turned out that a little girl had come up missing 
from about quarter between a quarter and a half a mile from where we were camped. Um, she had been her, her family had been camping a mile away. She was on her bike. She was riding on this path by herself. I think she was like eight or nine, something like that. And um, then she didn't come home. And they went looking. They found her bike. Um, and they thought, oh shit, we got a problem. So they, you know, immediately called everybody, and everybody came. And they had helicopters and horses, and, and, and none of this occurred until after we were out of there. Um, I am somewhat sure she was in the back of that car. Somewhat. Let's say 60% like she was in that car. And I, I chastised myself. I think, well, what, what the fuck? You know, why didn't you, what, you know? Well, there wasn't enough data there to do anything with it. You know, what was I going to do? Run out there, stop the car and say, hey, you got any little girls in the back? Um, you know, if a little girl would have popped up or some damn thing, yeah, would have stopped him. Would have stopped him. He couldn't go fast enough to outrun our horses. We could have fucking stopped him if we would have seen anything. That, but we didn't. We didn't see anything. So anyway, it turned out this little girl was missing. She was never found. Um, when we found out about that, we had moved to a KOA campground in Flagstaff because we had some other trouble out there. We got tired of it. So we moved to this KOA. And we were walking down to breakfast. It was really nice, deluxe KOA. Uh, had, a, had a food hall, had everything. God, it was really pleasant. We, we got more peace and quiet there than any place else <laughs> out in the woods. And we were walking. No, we were at breakfast. We were at breakfast one morning, sitting there. And this guy comes up. And he's a big fat guy, weird looking guy, just one of those guys you'd think, where, what fucking rock did he crawl out from under? And uh, he sat down and he, at our table, and he said, hey, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, shoot. And he said, uh, you know that little girl that's missing? And I said, yeah, we've heard about that. And he said, uh, they think I did it. And I'm like, oh, okay, tell me more. <laughs> you know, let's talk this through. We can be mates. You can tell me everything. You can trust me. Sure, it's, you know, it's okay. And he said, "No, I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, but they think I did it, and they're and they're um, they're they're gonna try to frame me with it or some fucking thing like that." He had this long convoluted tale. And at that moment, I was pretty well convinced he fucking did it. You know, what are the odds? What are the odds to end up in a campground with it? motherfucker? Um, and he said he wanted to ask me a favor. I said, okay, ask. You know, maybe he wanted me to hide the body or something like that. You know, sure, we can, we can take care of that. Let's go out in the woods and see the body and uh, I'll cap you from behind. And then, um, I'll say I felt threatened and, uh, you know, it'll all be good. And he wanted me to... He said the, the FBI had been going through the campground asking people if they, if they knew him and anything about him. And he wanted me to tell the FBI that on the day the girl went missing, he was there in the campground, period. Swear it. He wanted me to swear it. And I said, well, in the first place, I'm not going to fucking do that. In the second place, we weren't here. We were out there, you know, maybe a quarter mile from where the motherfucker got the girl. And he's like, oh, well, that's okay. Just tell him you were here. 
And I'm like, well, there, there's not going to be any record of us checking in here until, you know, like whatever, a week, 10 days, maybe two weeks after she went missing. You know, it's easy to follow this up. It's easy to, no, why, why, why would I fucking do that? I just as soon shoot in the fucking mouth, you know? And he just was insistent. He just went on and on and on about that. And he wouldn't let it go. And finally, I just tell him, fuck off, just go, go, get away from it, just go, go away. And he did. He got up and, and grudgingly left. And after breakfast, we were down there about an hour, he was gone. After breakfast, uh, we had to walk back to our campsite. And we had to walk by what turned out to be his trailer. It was the tiniest little thing. It was like a 12-foot, you know, 1945 fucking run-down piece of shit. Really a piece of shit trailer. And I didn't even see any vehicle around there. That's interesting. I never thought of that before. I don't remember seeing any vehicle around there. I just wonder if I would have seen a vehicle... Could I have matched it to the one that drove by us out there? Now that would have been that would have been good. I, I just thought about this that this very moment. I do not remember any vehicle associated with that trailer. Just a trailer sitting there, been there for I don't know how long. Huh? Interesting. Um, anyway, I was walking by him and by the trailer. I didn't see him. And I, the more I walked by, I just got more and more pissed, and I'm I'm a little bit impulsive. <laughs> And uh, my son was with me, and I said, just a minute. And I, I think, I can't remember if he walked with me or not. I walked uh, 30 feet over to this trailer, and I was going to tell that guy what I thought of him, and I was going to tell him that I was going to go talk to the FBI and fucking tell him but what he said. And just see what he did. Just see what he did. You know, he wants to draw down, fucking go, go for it. Do it. I not faster than anybody in the world, but I guarantee I'm faster than a fucking fat slob like that. And so I went and knocked on the door. Just normal knock, not a pound, nothing, just a normal knock. He had no idea who it was unless he had seen me coming. And instantly, the whole trailer started shaking. And somebody inside, like a big heavy guy, was flopping this way and flopping that way and stopping here and running around and, and I heard a door slam that I might have been there might have been some little separator to the to the sleeping area or to the probably to the head you know to the bathroom probably something like that and it slammed really hard and and this went on for a long time like 10 or 15 seconds something banging the trailer was physically rocking and I thought what in the Fucking fuck. I heard no vocal sounds whatsoever. Um, and when it all stopped, it went silent. And I said, okay, now he's coming to the door. No, he never came to the door. So I knocked again a little harder. Nothing. Silence. And I knocked a couple of times more because I knew he was in there. No fucking, you know, wasn't his pet rabbit for Christ's sake. And he never came to the door. And I thought, oh, you motherfucker. You got her in there right now? And I, something told me to jerk that fucking door open, break it off the goddamn latch if you had to, just, just fucking get in there. Something told me to do that. And I didn't because the courts and law enforcement have become so fucking crazy, crazy over the last 50 years that nothing would happen to him at all but I'd go to jail for breaking and entering and 
scaring him, making him feel bad. You know, I'd get five years just for making him feel bad. And so I didn't do it. Uh, instead, I went and called the FBI and told them I wanted to meet with them privately. And they showed up and we went to a place where he couldn't see us. And we talked and I told them exactly every detail of what had happened. And they took notes and they said, oh, well, thank you. That's very fucking nice. Thank you. Thank you. And they went away. And I said, okay, now, you know, if he's innocent or guilty, they're going to fucking figure it out because they got somebody to really focus on now. And I waited and waited, and he just kept hanging around, hanging around. He avoided us, didn't know eye contact, no, no anything. And uh, finally, about a week or ten, week, a week, probably a week, the FBI came back. They hid over in the bushes, and they got our attention. They said, come here, come here, come here. You know, <laughs> secrets, we got secrets. And so we met him at the same place and sat down, and, and they said, okay, we just wanted to let you know that we've checked this guy out, and he's fucking clean. He's just clean. He's just squeaky clean. And I said, oh, really? Well, that's nice. That's good to know. What'd you do? And I, and I told them that I had worked federally before, and, you know, they, they couldn't really tell me much, but it opened them up a teensy bit. And, and I said, what'd you do? How'd you check him out? What's the, what's the story? And they said, well, we asked, there's another FBI agent here, stationed here, and uh, he knew the guy. And we asked him, you know, could this guy be involved? And the FBI guy said, no, no fucking way. No, 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 not in a million years. No, 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 no. And they said, okay, case closed. He's innocent. And they stopped looking at him. And I, I said, wait a minute. No. I mean, he's, he's, he's FBI, okay. Well, supposedly we're supposed to trust him. Well, I had quit law enforcement because I learned that you couldn't fucking trust him. And... But it had, it had some credibility. It was an FBI agent who, who vouched for the guy. And I pressed and pressed and pressed to the point of pissing him off. And I said, okay, this, this guy vouches for him. Okay, can he vouch for his whereabouts on that day? Can he vouch for that? Does he positively fucking know? Was he having lunch with him the entire fucking day somewhere 50 miles from here? And they said, well, no, 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 no. He did, he, no, 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 nothing like that. He, he just vouched for him. He just vouched for his character. And I said, well, he just asked me to lie to the FBI a week ago. He just, that, that, that ain't a good character. You know, that, that, that's kind of a fucking red flag there. You fucking, oh, God, I wanted to slap him. Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl, you know. Fuck me. And they just kept insisting, no, the FBI guy, he had vouched for him, and the, he, was, he was clean, and there's no possible way he could have done it because he, he was just such a nice fucking guy, you know. And in the back of my mind, I thought, God damn it, God damn it. Is, is, you got an FBI guy in there who's also a fucking pedophile, you know? Really? I didn't say that, but in the back of my mind, that little light bulb went off. And I thought, what in the fucking hell? And they shook hands and left. And uh, that was it. That's all we ever heard about it. It was done. They never found the girl. Never found a body. Never. Well, I don't know. That was fucking, you know four or five lifetimes ago. Maybe they did someday find the body. I never heard about it if they did. But for the time we were there, we were there another couple of months in that area. Uh, there was nothing on the news about them ever finding her. So um, that was our first experience trying to find peace and quiet south of Flagstaff, Coconino County. The next one was, uh, God, it was only like a day after that. 
after that car had driven through before we moved to the KOE. We were still in, the, in that camp spot. And uh, we were out there just lounging. Had some, had some lounges and we were lounging. We were lounge lizards, you know. We were just soaking up the warmth and, the, you know, watching the snakes and stuff like that. And life was life was okay. And we were starting to wonder if we might, you know, psychically survive all this fucking horrific bullshit. And we decided, my son and I decided to go for a walk. Just down this little path thing. The same path, road thing that this little car had driven up. And, and we... The, we went the opposite direction of where the little car had come from. Not even thinking about the little car. No, that was, you know, done, done deal. We had it was gone, purged from the memory, pretty much. And so we're walking, walking, just strolling in that lazy afternoon, nice day. Nobody within a hundred fucking miles. And uh, we're about a hundred yards from our camp, and I look up ahead, and there's a pickup that had careened off the road, off the, off the trails thing. And it's about uh, 30, 40 feet off the road, and doors are open. Uh, like, the, I, I th my immediate notion was, oh, it's drunks, and they ran off the road, and they're probably passed out, something, something like that. And uh, so we just kept walking, and then we noticed that <clears throat> there was some kind of commotion on the ground on our, our side of the pick it on the ground in, in the grass. And we got a little closer and we noticed that there was two guys. One of them was standing, the other one was straddling a body on the ground. And we got a little closer and realized that was a woman. We got a little closer and realized it was an old woman. And the guys were young. They were early 20s, Mexicans. And I thought, oh, what the fuck? And I always, always, always carried a gun, but not then, that day. I had a few other experiences in, through my life when I just didn't carry a gun and something horrific happened where I really, really needed one. So I told my son, run as fast as you can, just fucking run, just sprint back to the, back to the camp, get the rifle, sprint back to me as fast as you can. And he did. And I got the, got the rifle and, uh, held it up, yelled at him, said, stop, fucking stop now, I'm coming. And I started sort of jogging over to him. And they just looked at me and went right back to choking him. Like I just did, like I was air. And I got closer and I put him at gunpoint, said, fucking stop, I'm going to shoot you. And they just kept choking her. And I chambered around and they just kept choking her. And then I finally tightened my aim. The guy that was choking her, I was going to hit him in the side of the head because I'm, at, you know, 20 feet by now, 20 feet. The guy standing up, just standing there looking at me like, yeah, what, what are you going to do, motherfucker? Are you going to kill us? We don't care. And I tightened my aim. I'm going to get him right in the temple. One round. I thought maybe by now that the woman wasn't even struggling anymore. I thought, fuck, she probably did. And he realized that I tightened my aim and also tightened the tension on the trigger. He realized it. He, he got it. And he jumped up, threw his hands in the air, started yelling, fuck yous. And at that point, I'm just watching for him to go for a gun. I, I don't care what they're yelling. I'm just watching their hands and see what they're going to do. And uh, we no cell phones in those days, no nothing, no, no way to contact anybody. We're in the middle of fucking nowhere. 
far out as we could get, you know, far out as we could drive or four wheel drive. And they leaned down and they got a hold of this woman and they pulled her up and she's choking and gagging and holding her neck. And I said, lady, 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 get to get away, get away, get away. And I told the fuckers to back up, step back, step fucking back. I'll drop you. You touch her, I'll fucking drop you. And they're like, I have to, you know, same attitude, just air. You know, that's the arrogant cartel attitude. They, they don't care. They, no, I mean, it's not as if they can project that they don't care. They don't care. If you kill them, they don't care. Their lives are so fucking miserable, they think probably anything is going to be better than what they got. So they don't care. Um, and the woman, they wouldn't let go of her, and she wouldn't make any attempt to get away. And I thought, what the fuck is this shit? And I thought, okay, maybe they, they got, they, you know, some kind of relationship thing. At, at, at first I thought, well, she's a prostitute. They took her out there and, and uh, boinked her and they're going to kill her. Um, but then she seemed to have some kind of connection to him. Beyond that, you know, even a prostitute would have run away. And she wouldn't. Even when she had the chance, she wouldn't. And I, I, I'm trying to process this. What the fuck? What is going on here? And the guy who had been choking her, pushed her towards the open door on the passenger side and said something in Spanish, uh, probably was get in, and she just did. She just hopped in the pickup in the middle of the bench seat, sat down, like, okay, let's go. And the two guys got in and flipping me off and yelling, fuck yous. Um, and they backed out of there and turned around and drove away. And I thought, oh, welcome to Arizona. Welcome to the USA. And we walked back to the camp and trying to figure out what, what would be the proper thing to do. And uh, it was about half an hour later. Some other car came bumping and grinding and scraping along that little trail thing. What the fucking fuck they were doing? It was a family. <laughs> and we ran out and stopped them and said, hey, are you going to town? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, try to remember where you are because we need you to call the sheriff and get him out here. And they said, okay, yeah, no problem. And, and uh, God, it was about three hours later, the sheriff did show up right, right to our campsite. They held true to their word and they did it. And he said, okay, what's going on? What's going on? And we told him the story and he said, oh, described the vehicle a whole bit. And he said, yeah, hmm, okay. Um, I got to go check on something. I'll come back and talk to you. And so he was gone for a couple hours and he came back and he said, okay, I found him. I said, what? What? You found him? How in the fuck did you find him? <laughs> no, <laughs> they could have been anywhere in northern Arizona, for Christ's sake. It's been hours. You know, they, what the hell? And he said, well, I just sort of had an idea. When he told me the story, I had a sort of idea. <laughs> he was one of these slow-talking uh, old sheriffs, you know, old-time Western sheriff. God, I like those guys. Fuck, I, those are my kind of people. If they got to come and arrest somebody, they're going to apologize. They're going to say, man, you know, I'm sorry. I hate to do this. But, uh, you know, you, you know I got to arrest you. And if you just come along, you know, you just sort it out in court. And, uh, you know, it's probably going to be okay. Probably not going to be nearly as bad as you think it's going to be. So, so come on, you know, just come along. And, and that disarms people. And they're like, okay, 
okay, let's go. And now, you know, the, the Kamech is screaming, making themselves hoarse with screaming. They're screaming so fucking loud they can't even articulate the words. Get on the ground, get on the ground, motherfucker, I'll kill you. And of course, that makes everybody instantly defensive, and uh, that's why people get shot by cops. That's what's one reason. There's other reasons, but that's one reason. So anyway, he said that he had had this idea, and he went to where he thought they were, because he thought he recognized the family, and, uh, you know, <laughs> dealt with them before, like uh, two or three times a day, probably. And he went and uh, got the woman aside, and she said, yeah, they were killing me, and I passed out, and um, but I am not going to press any charges because they are my sons. And the sheriff uh, pushed as hard as he could, and she wouldn't do anything. She just, you know, you take me in. I'm just going to swear out a statement saying they didn't do anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And so the sheriff gave up and came back to us, and he said, well, you know, you saved your life. You know, they're probably going to kill her later, but for at least for today, you saved her life because they were planning to kill her for whatever, for some imagined transgression. You know, maybe they, uh, maybe she smoke some of their dope or some fucking thing, you know, you have no idea what the hell goes on down there. Um, and he said, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, have a nice day. If you see him again, you know, let us know. <laughs> if you see him doing anything bad, you know, either shoot him or let us know what, what, your choice, you know, pretty much. Um, and he left and that was the end of that. And we decided at that point that we weren't in a good place. <laughs> we weren't in a good campsite. So we moved, uh, I don't know, about 20 miles or something to a place called Weimer Springs. Beautiful Aspen Grove. God, it was gorgeous. It was just breathtakingly gorgeous. It was uh, huge white aspens, nicely spaced, lots of shade, and uh, the space in between them was grass, almost as if somebody had mowed it like a like a golf course, you know. God, it was just, just what the soul needed. Oh my God. You know, we set up a camp there at, and at some old established campground, campsite, I mean. There was no established camping there. It was a national forest out in the middle of nowhere. There's no, you know, they don't have picnic table and shit like that. Um, and we set up a nice camp there and we had our horses and our two vehicles and the horse trailer and all of our stuff spread out there. We had uh, several tents and a lot of gear and stuff. We set up a nice campground and we, we spent a day or two there just, just in bliss, just bliss. Days were warm, make a fire at night. Horses were hobbled so they were more or less free. They'd come around and steal the marshmallows and shit like that. It was uh, kind of sort of quasi-heavenly. Weimer Springs. Um, and one day, wife and son had gone walking around somewhere. And I laid down in the tent. And uh, warm day, door was open, the flap was open. And for about two minutes, I really lapsed into a feeling of peace. 
it's very rare. I, I've only experienced that maybe three or, three or four times in my entire life. This was total peace. At one with the world. And I could just feel my battery recharging. Right? That little green bar was just going up and going up and going up. And I thought, oh God, oh God, I need a couple of days of this. I'll be good to go. And I got about 15 minutes of it. And I heard a vehicle coming, and I thought, "What the fuck? What the fuck? What? You know that we were off in the corner by the woods. There was a, the the road thing, the trail thing that went by our campsite didn't lead anywhere except to us. It was a dead end. And uh, this vehicle pulled right up to my tent. I mean, six feet from my tent, stopped. And I thought, "What in the fuck?" Oh, well, maybe it's a ranger, you know, something like that. And uh, then they started razzing the engine, just stomping on that gas pedal, honking the horn. And I thought, oh, well, what the f maybe somebody's got an emergency. Maybe somebody snake bit, you know, something like that. So I jumped up and jumped out there, and it was an older pickup, fat, slob piece of fucking drunken shit driving it. Nice-looking girlfriend in the passenger seat. And I went to his window, and... Uh, I said, what in the fuck do you think you're doing? And he said, move your campsite, move your campsite. I looked and I said, what? Move my campsite? This is an old established campsite. It's at the end of the fucking road. There's nowhere else you can go. If I move my campsite, you can drive about 15, 20 feet, and then you got to stop anyway because that's the woods. What the fuck do you think you're doing? And he just got mouthier and mouthier and mouthier and just demanding. He started lunging his, his truck forward towards my tent. And after just a minute of this, the girlfriend is screaming at him, slapping at him. Are you insane? What do you think you're doing? What the fuck is wrong with you? Why am I with you? You know, like that. And uh, he was nonplussed. He just kept it up. He just kept it up. He's ramping up, ramping up. I expected any goddamn second he's going to grab for a gun. And I walked over just about four feet and picked up the same rifle, chambered around, got in front of the pick pickup, do what you're going to do. You know, I, I can get you through the windshield before you can hit me, motherfucker. Try it, please. Do you feel lucky? Punk. And he sat there and thought about it for a few minutes. And uh, his girlfriend is still screaming at him. No expression on his face, just looking at me. And I've got him right through the windshield in the chest. A 30-30 round is not much of a round. It's, you know, it's, it's an old, old deer round. But it'll go through a windshield and it'll take out a human. Um, the windshield is close enough to the body that it's not going to, you know, the glass is going to deflect a bullet a little bit. But it's not going to deflect it enough. You know, maybe it's going to knock it off by half an inch, something like that. So you get him in the left side of the heart or the right side of the heart, you know. You're going to get him. Um... And he thought about it for 30 seconds, probably. Just a stalemate standoff. And then he put it in reverse, back slowly away, and drove off into the distance. Never saw him again. And by that time, we're thinking, fucking Jesus Christ, this is worse than fucking New Mexico. This is a goddamn insane asylum. Something wrong with these people. This is the goddamn devil's fucking workshop here. Jesus Christ, it was bad. 
And then everything was quiet for about five days. And the horses roamed around on their hobbles, eating the grass, happy as hell. And we we were trying to relax, but now we were super wary because of the shit that had happened. And we were just on the edge all the time, just waiting for the next one, just waiting for the next fucking thing. And one night, uh, afternoon, um, some cars started showing up. I think it was a Saturday. Might have been a Yeah, it was a Saturday. It was a Saturday. And some cars started showing up. Two, three, four, five, eight, ten. And mostly they stayed at the other end of the, of the area. Um, and they started setting up camps. And I thought, well, okay, you know, it's Saturday. What the fuck? You know? And they, they weren't loud. They're just normal, boisterous, you know, kids and yelling and screaming. And a little bit of music, not too loud, shit like that. A uh, number of them drinking beer. I thought, well, you know, what the fuck? Beer. I'm, I'm not a beer drinker, but I will on occasion drink other things. So, uh, well, it's American. You drink beer. It's American. And um, then pretty soon we had 30 cars, and then 44 cars, and then 60, and then 100 cars. And then, and then it was a fucking... It was beyond a gathering. It was a festival. And we said, oh, my God. This, is, this could really fucking get out of hand. So far, nobody had camped within 80 yards of us. But it was looking like it had the potential to be ugly. But we just kept to ourselves. You know, we stayed in the campground, quiet. We don't even play music. We don't do anything. And then pretty soon, right about dusk, a big vehicle came rumbling in, slowly coming down the road with about 10 cars surrounding it. And we thought, what? In the fucking hell is that? It was a semi-truck. Big flatbed semi. It was just incomprehensible. We, did, we couldn't process this. We couldn't compute. It had been, you know, pretty uncomfortable to get the fucking four-wheel drive up there. And here's a semi. A semi, full-size semi. And it parked and uh, positioned itself. And we walked over a little closer to try to see what in the hell was on this semi. It was just piled over with equipment. And uh, they took the tarps off it, and, and we started looking, trying to identify the stuff. What was it? It turned out to be it was an entire setup for a rock concert. Huge speakers and amps and every kind of microphone and instruments and drums and Stage, pop-up stage, and just. And we thought, oh, God. We fucking stepped in it now. Okay, now it's, now it's getting dark. It's too late to uproot our camp and, and crawl off farther into the woods. We're going to have to endure a night of living hell. And we were just, uh, how much more of this shit can we take? What other state can we go to? Where can we go? How far out in the woods do you have to go to just have a quiet day and a night? Now, years, years before, we had debated whether or not we wanted to get involved with some organized religion. We weren't sure about it. We wanted to know more about it. We wanted to experiment. Not, no, not experiment. We wanted to experience it a little bit, carefully, see what it was about, see if we fit. 
and we researched all the major religions, and we settled on uh, Mormon Church of Latter Day Saints. They seemed like uh, they, you know they, they seemed like logical people. They didn't drink. They, they had some beliefs that were patently fucking weird. But we thought, well, maybe they're just weird because we don't understand them. You know, we got to study them. People will teach us. And they they seemed to have a really strong sense of community. And we thought, man, that's that really. Really, that's sounding, sounding like what we want in our lives, you know. Really, we could get behind people like that. And we just never got around to it, you know, the, the New Mexico thing. We were in New Mexico three, three and a half years, I think, robbed nine times. At the end of it, they had, uh, the cartel had run a car through our restaurant at 70 miles an hour, put a bunch of people in the hospital. That's how bad it was. That's how rough it was. Um... So anyway, we, we wandered over and we found some people, you know, on the outskirts of this group watching the semi setup. And we said, hey, how are you doing? Uh, what group are you with? And they said, oh, we're, uh, we're LDS. We're Church of Latter-day Saints. And this is our annual father and son weekend. And I said, oh, my God, thank you, sweet Jesus, there is a God. He's come to help us. And I just sighed relief. We almost cried. As I mean, certainly we knew that, you know, no Mormon get-together is going to be any kind of a problem. You know, they don't even drink. Well, we could look around, we could see a lot of them drinking, but we thought, well, maybe they, they keep it very light, you know. Uh, and we thanked them and we, and we said, well, you know, sometime if you want to come over to our campsite and talk to us, you know, you'd be really welcome. And they're like, okay, sure. And we went back to the campsite. And this get-together thing wound up and wound up and wound up. And pretty soon they got a fucking band up there and they're just wailing. They're just... They took years off the lives of every wild animal within three miles, you know. They had big gensets running and huge lights and just wailing. And the people are jumping around and dancing and drinking and we thought, oh, well, this isn't really what we thought Mormons were. And nobody ever came to talk to us. We thought, well, they're busy with the party, you know, maybe tomorrow. And that all through that night, they got wilder and wilder and wilder and wilder. And the group closest to us, which was was now about 60 yards across the grassy area, they ramped it up as bad, as raucously as any group you could ever imagine. They had huge, mini mountains of empty beer cans. They were all drunk. There was about maybe 18 of them, I don't know, in that group, just in that group. And they had their own speakers. The band had shut down by then. Now we're, now we're looking at midnight. And the band had shut down. But this other group started up because they weren't, they weren't ready for the band to shut down. So they just made their own puke. And uh, they, they got so wild that uh, it was just crazy. Our horses were still, you know, shuffling around in their hobbles and um, they were out there 
in the dark with glow-in-the-dark frisbees, uh, throwing them, hitting our horses. You know, they, they were targets. They were doing it for fun. And it would scare the hell out of the horses, and they would try to run in their hobbles, and they couldn't, and they would fall down. And they thought that was just hilarious. That was great fun. And uh, they get louder and louder, and pretty soon we're at like two in the morning. And they had no signs they were ever going to fucking stop, ever. And finally, I walked over about halfway to their to their camp, and I, I yelled at them, got their attention, I, and I said, hey, people are trying to sleep over here. Please, can you keep it down a little bit? That's it. That's verbatim what I said. I don't know. Maybe my tone always sounds angry, and I often am angry, but <laughs> yeah, well, fuck them. But it was nicely said, and I said, please. And instantly... It was, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. We're going to get you. We're going to kill you tonight, you motherfuckers. You know. And I didn't even retort. I just walked back to the camp and waited. I thought, well, maybe after a few minutes, you know, cooler heads will prevail. And you know, somebody will get to them and shut them the fuck up. And slowly they'll calm down. We'll be able to sleep at some point. You know, maybe, we hope. Um, that didn't happen. What happened was they ramped it up even more. Uh, there was a bunch of kids over there also running around. And they started running through our campsite. Uh, and they would throw shit into our fire. Um, some of which exploded, some of which stank. I don't know what it was. And they thought that was hilarious. They would streak through the campsite throwing shit into our fire and, and knocking over our, our little tables with dishes and shit like that. These were evil beings. These were satanic beings. And I meant to use those two words, evil and satanic. These were satanic people. And the, the adults could see what was going on. They thought it was hilarious. That was good fun. That was just great. Great. Keep it up, boys. Girls. It was girls. It was, it was about half boys and girls. And the ages ran from probably about, probably about eight years to up into the teens of the group that was running through the camp. Uh, probably probably eight or ten of those, I would guess. Um, finally, we'd had enough. By now, it's two. It's two in the morning. No other people. There were a total of, God, I don't even know. I can't even guess. I'm guessing somewhere between 150, 300 people camped in, in the main encampment area, which was 40 yards from the worst group. Um, of course, everybody there could hear him clearly. And nobody lifted a finger. Nobody lifted one finger to stop him or even say, hey, hey, that's enough, guys. Knock it off. Nobody said one word. And a kid was scared and my wife was scared and uh, my kid, I put him in the tent because I thought it was going to get ugly. And I finally reached the red line. And I, I had, a, you know, I had a thirty-thirty and a handgun of some type. I think five rounds, and you know, thirty-thirty is not a fucking combat weapon. It's a, you could do combat against a sleeping deer. You know, that's about it. <laughs> uh, certainly, they were all armed. You know hundreds of guns and no radios, no cell phones in those days, no nothing. 
And I told my wife, okay, I know you're scared, I, you know, but you, you got to do this. This is something you're going to have to do in your life, and I'm sorry. I can't leave this campground because they'll take it over. They'll take it over. They'll probably rape you, probably kill the kid, probably steal everything, set the, set the horses on fire. I can't leave here. You're going to have to go. You have to take your little car, bumpity scraping down that fucking road, and you go to any place you can find where there's lights. A house, ranger station, fire station. Uh, if you have to stop a car, if you have to block a goddamn highway and stop a car, you do that. And you tell them, please, please call the police right now because we got a big fucking problem. And uh, gosh, she didn't want to do it. She was just trembling and crying and she didn't know really where she was. She had followed me in there. She just didn't know anything. And I, I said, look, Weimer Springs. Just remember that. Wrote it down. Weimer Springs. Uh, it was, it's a known uh, landmark place. And, uh, you know, find the cops. Tell them Weimer Springs. They'll bring you back out here. Okay, you don't have to find your way back. And so she just sobbing and she gets in the car and she drives away. God, I felt the sadness and the fear. And it was palpable. It was... Uh, she, she had to go by this main body of the group to get out. And I expected them to stop her car and jerk her out and do God knows what. Because this, these were satanic, evil fucking entities. They don't get any worse. Well, yeah, they do. I mean, they could, they, they could be pedophiles, you know. Who knows if they weren't. And uh, anyway, so she got past them, and I sighed relief from that. And then she was gone a long, long time. I thought she was lost, you know, maybe she just pulled off the road somewhere and was crying. This is a bad fucking night. Was it the worst night of my life? No, the worst night was when my wife died. This was the second worst night of my life. Um, eventually, she came back, and she had several sheriff's cars with her. And uh, we told them the story, and they said, okay, we got it. We're going to take care of it. And they walked over to the to the groups, and uh, as soon as the sheriff's cars pulled up, they had hidden all the beer cans. And uh, so the, the deputies, uh, one, two, the two deputies walking around, there was more in other cars. And the, the two deputies walked over to the, to the worst group, and we couldn't hear what was said. Um, and they were there about 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe. And then they came back, and they said, okay, it's taken care of. They're going to shut up. And I said, okay, that's great. Thank you. But we want to pursue this farther through the church and through, we, we, want, to, we want to go to the prosecutor on this. We're, we're heading to another state because we can't fucking take it here. You, you, these people are crazy. We can't stay in Arizona. Crazier than New Mexico. Um, crazier than any country I've seen in Southeast Asia. Crazier than Cambodia. Fucking crazy. Insane. Clinically insane. That's, that's how we felt. It was, it, was, it was Satan's fucking place. That's how we felt. And uh, we said, okay, fine. You, you settled them down for tonight, but they're going to ramp up again. They got a whole day ahead of them tomorrow and tomorrow night. And uh, we need to have some case numbers and some stuff like that, some, some data, some specs. And told them who I was, what I used to do. So we can pursue this further when we're, once we're out of here. 
Then they said, oh, no, we can't give you that. No, 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 no case number, no. This is all handled, don't worry. And I said, how do I know it's handled? And they said, well, they're going to be prevent, prevented from ever coming back here. And uh, I said, yeah, well, how are you going to enforce that? Well, I, you know, we do the best we can, you know. And they showed me several sheets of paper, they were documents, where they had recorded all of their vital statistics, you know, driver's license and all that shit. And they said, don't worry, we got it. We got it. It's taken care of. And they're not going to give you any more trouble. And they wouldn't give me a copy of anything, wouldn't give me a case number, incident number, nothing, just nothing. And they said, okay, thank you very much for calling us. And they got in the cars and left. No, actually, they did not. No, not, not at that moment. Uh, we said, look, if you guys leave, they're going to be honest. They're going to be honest. And we'll, there's a good chance we'll die here tonight by some misdeed that's done in the dark and nobody will ever know. Even if, even if the whole group saw them do it, their whole group will lie because now we know that they're evil. And uh, so if you're going, we're going. And they said, okay. So we packed everything up. Took us a while. Took us 40 minutes, you know, pack everything up, trailer the horses, do all the fucking shit, hook up the trailer, do all. It was a quite a little routine. And uh, we followed them on out. And I went into a hotel, Flagstaff. And uh, shortly thereafter, we left Arizona, went to another state. Never went back. Never went back to that state. Um, quite a while later, probably four months, we got settled somewhere. And I wrote to the uh, Coco Nino County Sheriff and said, okay, this is the incident that happened on such and such a date at such and such a time. Uh, your deputies came and they did this and this. And they wouldn't give us a case number, incident number. They wouldn't give us any data. They wouldn't give us anything. Now I want the data because we're going to pursue it. And the sheriff wrote back and said, no, there's no record of anybody ever going out there. No, we never heard of anything like that. And so I hit him with a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request for, for some case number, incident number, something. And they wrote back and said, no, there's no record. No record on file. Nothing ever happened out there. And we said, okay, you know, we're, we're just stepping back farther and farther and farther, seeing the bigger and bigger and bigger picture of the world. And we realized, oh, deputies are all Mormon. That whole area is Mormon. Deputies were Mormon. They're looking out for, quote unquote, their people. It's called corruption. And I pursued the uh, Coconino County Sheriff for a long time, several months, had an attorney write to him, say, look, you, you know, this could be a big problem for you if you keep lying and, and saying nothing happened. And they would just write back and say nothing happened. And then pretty soon they stopped writing back because they knew they didn't have to. The deputies would swear and say, no, we never went out there. No, no, no what are you talking about? How, how are you going to cut through that? You, you can't put them on a polygraph. Well, they won't, they won't take one voluntarily. Waterboard them? Yeah, it would have worked. I would have liked to. I'd like to today. Um, and I'd fucking YouTube it. Well, for, for 20 seconds until they pulled it, but I put it on my own server, put it on this server. Anyway, we had no choice but to drop the enforcement end of it. So what we did was I had a database of pretty much every address in the country. At, at that time, it was on uh, DVDs. I had something like 18 DVDs full of addresses the entire country. 
And I just did a, a search through the database for every LDS church within, uh, you know, like 50 miles of Flagstaff or 70 miles, whatever I did. And we made up a form letter to, the, to, to every LDS church in that radius and said, look, this happened such and such a night, Wyammer Springs. And um, we are offering like a five or $10,000 reward for the names of the people who, who were the worst offenders. And we sent it to every church, probably, I don't know, 60 churches, something like that, within that whatever radius I chose. Maybe 60, maybe 50 or 60 churches. Uh, and we thought at the very least, you know, nobody's ever going to give us the names, but we wanted every church to be aware of what had happened. That was the main point of what, why we were doing that. Uh, we thought at the very least, some percentage of them would write to us and say, God, dang it. Well, they wouldn't have said God. They would have said, dang it. We're really, really sorry this happened. This is not our way. Um, we're going to try to get, a, get to the bottom of this. And don't worry. We're going to handle this internally. We're going to handle it. Don't worry. We got you. We're really sorry we turned you away from the LDS church. Uh, we want valuable people. You know, we thought we would get some letters like that. Didn't know how many. I thought maybe 10% would write back something like that. And after some number of months, we had none. We had zero. So we sent them all out again. Same letter, slightly reworded. Um, never got a reply. And after about a year and a half, we dropped the whole thing. We did, however, make a podcast about it. And that's on in the Alien Anal Probe podcast collection. That is marked LDS. I don't remember the, the episode number, but it's marked LDS. The whole story is, with a lot more detail, is on that uh, in that podcast. Okay, so what I'm what I'm giving you here is an overview of why I left America. Uh, yeah, I bet shit happens in all Southeast Asian countries, well, all countries. Uh, I that was some of the worst shit I had seen in my life, and it took my respect for America and for Americans and just chopped it off at the ankles and then chopped it off at the calves and then chopped it off at the knees and then chopped it off at the thighs and then removed the legs from the hips. So that respect. And, and, and these are just, these are just a, a baby handful of the experiences that caused me to come to that conclusion. Now, I know that people who They have a job or a profession. Maybe they change that once or twice or even three times in their life. Um, they go to work every day and they work, you know, in an office or something and their lives are stable and um, they go around in and through life and they see tiny little hints of shit like this. Not that many people. Well, no, it, it used to be that not that many people had really horrible stuff like this happen. Now in, uh, you know, the 2000s, it's just about everybody has experienced things like this. Horrific, mind-numbing things. Um, not too many people have experienced as many things as I have because my life has been active more than most by a factor of about 80. And I've just been around more. 
I've just been out doing more things. And when you do that, you're going to experience more bad things. You're going to experience more good things too, but you're going to experience more bad things. And I did. And I have hundreds or thousands of stories similar to these. Okay, so we return to our home state after satanic Arizona, northern Arizona. And I In one of my ranches, I had had to haul a lot of hay. And so I bought a semi-truck to do that. And just taught myself to drive it. And drove it well. Really, really well. And so when we moved back to our home state, I thought, well, that'll be a nice relaxing occupation, you know. I'll just do that for a while. I had a, an online business going. It was just starting. It was doing good. Doing way better than I ever thought I would. Um, but I had a lot of idle hours and I was working as a photographer also for a company. And, um, I also had been writing for national magazines for ooh, 10 or 15 years before that and making at the height of it, making stinking good money. I was getting $6 a word for my magazine stories. Um, that was good money. And, uh, Let's see, when was it? That would have been uh, early 80s. Um, I could go to any newsstand anytime, and there would always be a handful of magazines that had my stuff in them every month. And that was fun. That was uh, that was nice. That was a validation of something. I don't know what the fuck it was. But, uh, money was good. The, the fame was good. Um, I did have a lot of trouble with magazines stealing my stuff. I had to sue a number of them. I would start getting fan mail from some magazine and somebody would say, man, I really enjoyed your article on such and such issue. And I'd go, what the fuck? What? what are you talking about? And I'd go, look, I never heard of the magazine. They had taken the story from some other magazine and just copied it and published it in their magazine and never got permission, never paid me or anything. And I would send them a letter saying, look, you published this, you didn't pay for it, you don't have my permission, I want money. And they would say, no, we got your permission. No, we, um, uh, it's around the office here somewhere. We got it, really, you signed a thing. I'd say, show me, show me the fucking copy, because I didn't. And in, uh, in a number of cases, it got right into the courtroom the day of the trial, uh, into the courtroom, and the, and the judge calls the case number. My attorney comes up and and the people say, well, we, we published it because we had permission, you know, and the judge said, let's see it. And they said, well, we, we don't really have it, you know, we, we can't find it or something like that. And the judge would say, okay, 10 grand. Now, pay it now. And uh, that's how it went quite a few times. And that's what what we're willing to start doing with these podcasts if people start stealing them. I, I, I think one guy has already. We haven't found where he's put them, but uh, we will. And we'll make money. Um, so anyway, at that time, I, I thought truck driving would be fun and I went and got a job doing it and I was really good at it. I was a prized employee every race was there three years and, uh, I loved it. 
God, I loved it. I loved driving the machinery. I loved the operation of the machinery. It was like, uh, you know, I loved the operation of a rescue tug. You know, you're out there and it's blowing a hundred and you've got to get close enough to shoot a line over to a ship, you know, and it takes some skill to do it or, or get drowning people out of the water in, in a, in a, in 20 foot seas. You know, it takes some skill to do that. And I, I did it and I was good at it. And driving the truck was the same thing. I've known people who were rich and they, <laughs> they bought trains and just drove them around. They would, they would, uh, pay, uh, for the rights to go up and down some stretches of tracks and they would just drive that train around because <laughs> it was so much fun to just properly, efficiently, competently, professionally operate that machine. Some people are just like to operate machines and do it really perfectly well. You know? And that's how I was about trucks. I just loved it. I, I worked up to be the, uh, the corporation, um, they called safety officer. I was the examiner as the test, the check driver for new hires and uh, was the examiner and uh, and taught them also could instruct and so that was fun but the pay was the, the pay was like half of what i would pay someone to do housekeeping chores in in one of the tugs you know in the old days it was just pathetic. It was just absurd. I there was no point in even cashing the checks, you know. Just to go have a couple of pizzas. It was just it was insanely insulting pay, and the working dish conditions were were horrible. They would squeeze you and squeeze you and squeeze you and make you run over your hours. And and then if you got popped, your logbooks were over your hours. They'd say, "Well, you know, you shouldn't have gone over your hours." And, well, and they and they would push you to run overweight and. Uh, push you to run poisons without the proper papers. And uh, they would run you in bad equipment. And then when you got popped at a scale, you had to pay the fines because you're supposed to, I guess, uh, you know, dismantle the entire truck and check every fitting and every hose to see if there's a scrape mark on it or something like that. So it, it was a fuck job in that respect. And the warehouse people were the worst people on earth. Uh, they were petty, whiny, bitchy, moaning motherfuckers. I never seen a class of people like warehouse people. How can hell they were bad? They were bad. Uh, the cops were bad. I got stopped at a scale one time. I knew I was 100% legal. I was hauling poison. I had all the papers. I had the poison placards on the truck. These are uh, big diamond-shaped sticky things. goes on the side of the trailer. They're big. And the regulation says they must be mounted uh, vertically with with one point pointing up and one point pointing down. Okay, so when I put that placard on, um, the top point of the, of the diamond, I didn't want to put it over a rivet on the side of the trailer because then rain would get under it and start making it come loose eventually. So I put the point, the top point of the diamond about quarter of an inch, I suppose, uh, off to one side of the rivet, not a half inch, quarter of an inch, three eighths of an inch off to one side. So from the top point of that diamond on the placard to the center of that little rivet that held the siding on the trailer, it was quarter to three eighths of an inch. And on the bottom, 
I put the point, just not thinking about it, I just put the point uh, uh, the same distance to the other side of the rivet that it came to down there at the bottom. Uh, so I wanted the entire perimeter of that sticky placard to be sealed so that water wouldn't get under it and, and start making it come loose. You know, there were there were still rivets under the center of the uh, of the placard, but the water couldn't get in because the perimeter of the of the sticky thing was sealed. You know, it's a watertight seal. Okay, so what the fuck is you know? I, who who would ever even think of that? So I rolled into the scale. Got they flash a light, say pull over, bring papers. I pulled pulled over, brought papers. They came out, full inspection. Couldn't find anything at all. I mean, they they will put a team on your truck and they will look for a brake hose that has a scuff mark, like a shoe scuff. You know, there's no there's no broken rubber. There's just a scuff mark on a brake hose. And uh, and they'll flag you and they'll say, okay, you gotta you gotta replace that hose. You know, you gotta call in a mechanic and cost you two three hundred dollars to replace that hose because there's a scuff mark on it you know, they, they, they delight in that shit anyway so they couldn't find anything and that sort of ticked them off because it's rare that they can't find anything they don't like that and um, then they came to that placard and they said hey uh, we're gonna cite you because that placard is not uh, not vertical points are not vertical and the, and the left and right points are not horizontal you know they're, they're off look at this look at this look at this and I looked and I thought, what, what, what are you talking about? That's a fucking horizontal. It's vertical. What, what, what the fuck? What the fuck? And then they pointed to that little gap between the top point of the, of the triangle, the little gap between that and the, and the rivet up there, you know, quarter to three-eighths of an inch. And on the bottom, it was a quarter to three-eighths of an inch the other direction. And at that point, you step back again in your life. You just step, step back again and try to absorb this even bigger picture. It's like, oh, through my life, I've learned that all these other people are insane and evil and satanic. Now I have to include this group also. Okay, I get it. And I said, okay, please write me the site because I am calling the uh, Sacramento Bee right now. They'll be here in an hour. I'm going to pull up here and wait. And we're going to document this. We're going to put it on the news. Oh, well, you know, I suppose we can let it go this one time. Fuck you. Write it up. I want the site. I, this is a broken law. It's a fucking broken law. Look at it. If you don't write this motherfucker up as a citation, I'm going to turn you in for not following the law, motherfucker. Well, why don't you just get out of here? You know, why, why don't you just get in that truck and you just go, you just fucking go, you know. And I knew that would be the response, and I did. And that kind of thing was once a week. Once a week. I have a million stories like that. Every truck driver knows it. That's why, of the ones who quit, that's probably why most of them quit shit like that. They're tired of anal, retentive, insane, satanic fucking law enforcement that just I have a thousand stories like that okay so I quit that <laughs> it was fun god I love the trucks I love the trucks but I quit it for for those reasons and by that time my online business was doing quite well um well enough that I could go buy some airplanes and fuck around like that 
and had a lot of fun, a lot of fun flying stuff. I, I bought my first fixed wing, you know, I had come from helicopters, but I never flown any fixed wing, anything. And I just bought one and they had a nearby airport, a big, long grassy strip. And I just, you know, I stood, I knew all the theories. Uh, stick and rudder was my Bible, <laughs> you know, that fucking thing. I slept with it. I knew it backwards and forwards. I could quote any, any chapter, any line. I knew the theories. And uh, I knew how to fly helicopters. And so I bought that airplane. And I just took it out to the airport. And I ran up and down the runway until I could hold the nose wheel at whatever attitude I wanted. I could adjust for crosswinds. I could do everything. And I just took off. And I bought a few more airplanes and I messed around, did this and that. And I finally did later go back and get some training for aerobatics and, uh, and IFR and IFR, which I fucking hated, but I did it anyway. God, I hated that. <laughs> Jesus. There, there used to be a guy in, uh, wrote for flying magazine. I wrote for flying magazine too. Uh, there was a guy in there called, uh, Bax seat. As I recall, he had a monthly thing, B-A-X-S-E-A-T, Bax, I suppose was his name. Anyway, Bax seat. Back. See, I don't know how he pronounced it, but anyway, he uh, he had gotten to the point in his flying life where he had to <laughs> get with it IFR, and he didn't want to. Oh my fucking god, he didn't want to. He he resisted that for years and years and years and years because he didn't want to, and I didn't want to. But he did it, and I thought, well, you know, if this guy can do it, I can do it. So I I got some fairly extensive uh, IFR training, and um, you know, to challenge the course, you know, that's a snap. You just challenge the course. You know, it's not a problem. I, I see all these guys, you know, they go out and they spend, you know, I don't know, 20 grand uh, for a lesson's wealth. That's okay. You know, some people need that. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, I, I remember I was out uh, first day or two, I had that stupid airplane in. I was running up and down the runway. There's no no traffic out there, no nothing. You could you could run up one way and, and hop off the ground and then land, you know, before you got to the end of the runway and you turn around and go back and you do that again and again and again until you got the really good feel for stuff. And I was doing that one day and this guy came out and my wife was there watching me. And he just stood there next to her and he said, What the hell's that guy doing? What the fuck? And she said, Oh, he's teaching himself to fly. <laughs> and this guy this guy was a longtime pilot. He just laughed and laughed. We became very best friends, very best friends for life, lifetime friends. I'd die for him. He said he would for me. I don't know if he would, but he said that. <laughs> so after that, I, the, the, uh, the magazine writing kind of wound down because I could not do fiction and I ran out of stories. Uh, I had a commercial diving um, monthly slot, and I just sort of ran out of stuff I wanted to tell people, and um, I ran out of sea stories and rescue stories. You know, if I published them all, and <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't make the, the leap to fiction, so I, I just wound down, stopped writing. Um, we then moved to another state. I'm going to wrap this up in. 13 minutes, just like last time. <laughs> we moved to another state and uh, my wife was pretty big into the restaurant business and uh, 
So I played with that on the periphery for a while. Didn't like it. Didn't like the customers. <laughs> Fuck the customers. Customers are not always right. They're hardly ever right. Fuck them. <laughs> um, and I got into really, really hot motorcycles. Uh, you know, well over 200 miles an hour. And I couldn't get enough. I wanted 250. I wanted 300. I wanted 350. Oh, fucking God. I wanted more and more and more. It's an addiction. It's a, it's a mental problem. When you get up into those speeds, it either bites you in the ass or it doesn't. If it doesn't, you, you walk away and you live a long time. If it bites you, then you, you, you just go to your moth about the flame until you die. That's pretty much it. And I was a moth about the flame. I was going to die. But, uh, Something happened and I got out of that. Um, then my wife complained. She said she had a pain somewhere. She couldn't really pin it down. She thought he, she pulled a muscle. So we did some massages and got some muscle relaxers and ibuprofen and stuff like that. That went on for a month or two. And it just wouldn't go away. And then one night it got really bad. Really, really painful. I said, God damn it, I, I can't take this anymore. I can't take a pain. I can't, I can't hardly breathe. I got to go, go to the ER. So we had really, really good insurance. We drove up to the ER. And um, they did a bunch of shit and I uh, couldn't really find anything. Well, we don't know. Maybe you pulled a muscle, you know. And uh, finally they said, you know, the only thing left we can do is a CAT scan. I said, do it. Why haven't you done it already? Fucking do it. She's laying there in pain. They got her on morphine. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Why, why'd you stop? diagnosing, you know? And they said, okay. And they took her in and an hour, whatever, two later, they came back and said, well, you know, we got bad news. You got a huge mass in the center of your chest. Up the side of, uh, let's see, left lung and in, and in the center of the chest. And of course, that was the end of the world. And uh, and we fought that for a year, and uh, it was uh, lung cancer, as I recall. It was small cell smoking, directly related to smoking. She had actually quit about two years before we got her. She had tried everything like all of us had. Nothing worked. Uh, I, I did it just because I got pissed off. I got pissed off that cigarettes were controlling my life and I didn't want to be controlled and I fucking quit. Hardest thing I ever did in my life. Uh, she she liked smoking. She liked it. She did not want to quit. She Really, she would say that out loud. I do not want to quit. I like it. I enjoy it. And they're like, well, you, you have to. You know, She was starting to get emphysema. And uh, we got her on a, we tried everything, everything, you know, there's every fucking cockamamie goddamn remedy in the world is out there. None of them work. We, we didn't find anything that worked. Even, not even remotely. It was just joke after joke after joke and wasted money and wasted time. And half the shit made her sick and, you know, on and on. Finally found some stuff called Shantix. That's the name in the U.S. There's, uh, it's got other names in other countries. C-H-A-N-T-I-X. Shantix. It was expensive. Uh, a lot of warnings about side effects. No, she had none at all. 
she took the first pill. And, and, and the deal is you're not supposed to try to quit smoking. You just keep on smoking. You take the pills and you keep on smoking. You just do what you want. And she took the first pill. One, one a day, as I recall. Felt fine. Next day. Felt fine. Next day. Felt fine. Smoking. Smoking. Happy. Everything's fine. And on about day five, she didn't want cigarettes anymore. She didn't want them. She had no willpower at all. Nothing. She never smoked again. But then two years, two and a half years later, the, the, the lung cancer probably had already started by then. And, uh, and just manifest itself, you know, two and a half years later. And small cell is, uh, you know, totally incurable. You know, you can get some outliers, some flyers, you know, that probably one out of 20,000, you know, can go five years. The vast majority are gone in two years. She was gone in one year, pretty much to the day. Uh, I think it was one day from our from our anniversary. So another day or two, uh, that would have been 40 years. So, uh, you know, we were, God damn it. Hmm. So we were with her in the hospital. We knew she was going to go within hours. She was very comfortable, medicated well somewhat lucid and I sat with her in the bed and uh, just caressed her face and then she was gone and I just stayed there for about another hour caressed her face couldn't stop And then something told me that she was gone. I mean, really gone. She had moved on. So we got up and uh, went home. I had a uh, Hayabusa at that time, Hayabusa motorcycle. I could do 209 on a good day, 209, 209 miles an hour. I did it. I did. Uh, I did 100 miles an hour every place I went. I did 150 miles an hour once a day, probably at least once a day. I did 200 or more a couple of times a week because it was a little bit stressful. It was a fast, fast bike, and I couldn't get enough. And um, I would go places, you know, I'd go somewhere to meet a friend or something go into their house and I would say, okay, you know, the exit is up there. Uh, you know, I can see it in the distance on the horizon. So time to start slowing down, you know, routinely I did this. Um, so I'd start slowing down on the brakes, on the brakes, on the brakes, on, on the brakes more. Jesus Christ, how much can they take? You know, and then the, the, the exit would go by. <laughs> I'd look down, I'm still doing 119, you know, Fucking hard. That, that was hard to get used to. I, I never really adapted to that. The night after uh, after we lost her, um, 
I went down to meet some other family and we didn't even cry. We just sat there, mouths open, staring like guppies, you know. Well, one o'clock in the morning, I decided to go home to the empty house and it's raining just pitchforks, just torrent. And I had a long straight stretch. It was a five mile stretch. No, more, it was more like eight miles straight, but flat freeway. It was one or two in the morning. I knew the stretch. I, I, there was only one or two places the cops could hide uh, that night. I didn't care. Pouring torrential rain opened it up. I, I got to, I could do 209 on dry. I could do 206 on, on wet. Opened it up. Hoping for the hydroplane and the slide and the sparks and the crash. I don't know why it didn't happen. It should have. Got home. Started the uh, next few weeks, you know, started cleaning up affairs. Had a lot of money. A lot of money in the bank. Had money coming in. I had given away my uh, online business and I was still getting royalties out of that. And, and would for life. Unless I went bankrupt or something, but uh, so I had good money at that time. Um, got our, got our, all the affairs cleaned up. Then what? Moved out of the house, went and stayed with family. Little room, quiet little room. Got some peace. Played with my cat. And then I knew. That I was done. Done with the U.S. All the shit that had happened in my life. Ten, twenty thousand more things than I mentioned here. These are just the tiniest baby handful of the few of the highlights. It's been a busy, busy, busy fucking life. Um, but I was done with the U.S. That was the capper. Not, not that the U.S. did this to her. It just... Maybe it was her saying, look, now's your time. Get out. I don't know. I knew I wanted to go to Southeast Asia. I loved Canada and Alaska. They were my home where I belonged, where I was born into genetically. Um, but Southeast Asia was, I wanted that to be my new home if I could. I don't know why. It was just, you know, go back to those cartoons when I was five. That the bug that bit me then was still nipping at me. I was a lot more fortunate than lots of guys. I had money. I had money. Uh, so I could go anywhere in the world, any fucking place I wanted, and I didn't have to worry about too much of anything. I could buy my way out of any problem that came along. Lots of guys don't have that. I'm still going to tell you how I can do how you can do it if you don't have that. I'm still going to teach you how to do that as best I can. There's still going to be a few guys who can't do it, but I'm going to. More guys are going to know how to do it when I'm done with these podcasts than if I didn't make the podcast. So, I got a map, Southeast Asia, and I did the. Uh, 
in the tail on the donkey. I closed my eyes. The map was in front of me. It's on the screen, actually. <laughs> and I just took uh, my hand or something, circled around with a finger out. First place, my first country, my finger hit. That's where I was going to go. And it happened to fall on Thailand, probably because it's like in the center of that region, you know. So <laughs> um, I knew nothing about Thailand. Nothing. I, I never had the slightest desire to go to any place called Thailand. What the fuck is Thailand? What is that? I had no idea what that was. Never heard anything about it. Never knew anybody who went there. Just nothing. But it, but, but that didn't matter. I didn't know really anything about any country. I knew Vietnam. But um, So that was my destination. Sent off. Got a visa. Got a new passport. Bought the flight. Was out of there in under a week. Every, no, I didn't take every day. I took my most prized possessions. Well, my good cameras and stuff like that. You know, I, I arrived uh, in Bangkok after a hideous flight. Looked around in Philippines a little bit, but didn't really like it. I, I, needed, to, I needed to go. Philippines was too westernized for me. Um, I needed to go to a foreign, exotic, crazy place to see what was the most exotic shit I could find. That's where I needed to be in the center of that. And so Thailand was just fine. It was a good choice. It was a good, good random choice of, <laughs> of the finger, you know. Um, ended up in, uh, landed in Bangkok, had a, had a hotel reserved. Turned out to be a stinking nice hotel in a bad location. <laughs> um, first few days, I would go outside. I, I came from uh, pretty cold climates most of my life. Um, first few days, I would go outside. Everything was so fucking alien. I just was stupefied. Speechless gawking around like a fucking tourist, you know. I swore I wasn't going to be a gawking tourist, but I was. And I would walk, I, I would have the intent to, to go walk somewhere. Like there was a busy street. I could see a really big, busy, busy avenue about uh, five blocks away. I could see the cars and the shit, big buildings. And I wanted to go there. I wanted to go there. And uh, so I'd go outside and bottle of water, start walking, I'd get a block. I'm going to fucking block. And I'd have to sit down and I... Rivers of sweat. Exhausted. Couldn't breathe. I was dizzy. That water was gone in the first 30 yards, you know. And I'd sit down a while and then I'd get up just what I thought was maybe enough strength to get back to the hotel. I'd come staggering back in and flop down on the bed, take a shower, change clothes. Drink another fucking three liters of water and it. Jesus Christ. And every, I did that every day, maybe two times a day. And I just got to go a little farther, a little farther, a little farther. Finally, I made it, I don't know, after like two weeks, I made it all the way to that busy street. <laughs> and I had pushed myself to get there. And uh, then I couldn't make it home. I, I thought I was going to die, probably. 
at the very least pass out and get my pockets rifled, you know, and shit like that. Uh, I was looking around for a cop, telling him, look, I can't make it home. You know, can you call me a cab? Because I can't even think. My brain's not even functioning. I'm, I'm done here. I'm going to sit here and die if you can't help me. I couldn't find a cop. Turns out there aren't really any street cops down there. Few and far between. Um, and so I found some kind of a 7-Eleven thing, bought a shitload of liquids, guzzled them, and then I could walk like 30, 40 meters towards home. Stop. Drink a half a liter. 30 meters. Stop. Drink a half a liter. <laughs> it must have taken me an hour and a half to make it back to the hotel from five blocks. Everything was so alien. There was no English. There was not a word of English printed, written. Nobody spoke a word of English except one girl in the hotel. She had a smattering of English. Uh, really terrible English. Um, and that was my first uh, time in Southeast Asia. And it was mother fucking exciting. It was overload of fucking exciting. It was just, oh God, it was everything I ever dreamed. All the misery and the pain and the delight and the wonder and the amazement and the fear and the stress and this was living. I know now, took me a long time to figure it out. I know now, positively, I know. After that middle of the night ride on the Hayabusa, 206 miles an hour up through the rain torrent. After that, Something kicked me in the ass. Kicked me in the fucking ass. Combat boot to the middle of the back. And that was my wife, of course. Okay, so that's my... Uh, that's how I got to Southeast Asia. That's my... Uh, some basic highlights of my background. That's how I got to Southeast Asia. And in number three, we'll continue onward from there. We're going to go through experiences, what I felt, what I saw, what it was like, how I learned to get around, how I learned to survive. Um, and everybody who's thinking about doing this, or dreams of doing it, you need to follow. And listen to every detail. Because it's all shit that you're going to experience if you come anywhere in Southeast Asia. The, Southeast Asia is Southeast Asia. There are differences in all the countries, but it's still Southeast Asia. There are commonalities in all the countries, too. Uh, as many commonalities as differences. It's a wondrous place for people who can relax and accept. And if you can't, you're going to fucking hate it. You're going to be out two months, three months, four months. Six months tops, probably. I've got a friend right now who's at that point. He's uh, he's become one of those angry expats, and he just bitches about every motherfucking thing. He sent me a text a couple nights ago. Uh, well, he's just unhappy with this and un unhappy with that. And 
anal retentive little things that wouldn't make you wouldn't make anybody unhappy, but he's unhappy. And I feel for him. I, I've tried to sort of bring him back on track. Say, look, you know, you're here. This is the way it's done here. Accept it. Just relax. You're going to die, and then you're not going to care. So, you know, kind of knock down the Karen now. You'll enjoy things a lot more. And I, I'm going to describe to you the, the mentality that it takes to be okay here. Not everybody can do it. There's lots of guys who just can't do it and probably shouldn't even try. Um, maybe I can help you prepare your mind for what you're going to find here, what, you, what you're going to experience. And just, I can't really tell you how different, how different it's going to be than whatever Western country you're in because you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to accept it. You're not going to be able to relate to it. You're going to think I'm lying. Uh, I, I generally, you know, people that I knew back in the world, in the other world, people ask me all the time, well, tell, tell us what it's like. And I used to, and they would say, well, why would you make shit up? The fuck? What are you, what are you talking about? That can't happen. It can't happen anywhere in the world. It's like, okay, don't ask me anymore. You know, you don't want to know. Don't fucking ask me. <laughs> uh, I experienced it all. In almost every Southeast Asian country, I lived in almost all of them. And I think I experienced every major point that there was to experience. I crisscrossed Thailand, I don't know how many times, on every kind of motorbike. Saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. Had some breathtaking memories. Lots of real points of anger, rage. So we're going to go through this. We're going to start. Now we've we've finished all this preliminary stuff. You got a foundation, just kind of sort of know where I'm coming from, how I got here. And now it's time for you to start really listening and ask yourself, can you do it? Can you thrive here? So that's where we're going next. Okay. Now we're way over, even my red line of time, we're way over. I hope I can still fit this video. These videos, the, the sources are like 11 gigs, you know, Jesus Christ. And then I got to whittle them and whittle them and compress them and compress them and try to get them down to something that somebody can, can download, listen to. Okay, we'll be done. Next one will be number three. This is number two. Uh, I probably said it before, all tapes are copyright 2023, stockphotosworldwide.com. If you see them anywhere except on our servers, tell us. We'll sue the fuckers. We'll send you a third. We'll send you a third of the reward. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes sometimes the reward can be, you know, 20 grand. 10 is not, 10 is not uncommon at all. 20 is pretty good. Depending on how much they stole and how much they, and how they used it can go 30, 40, 50 grand. We'll send you a third. That's our guarantee. We do it. Fucking do it. You got to wait for the trial or you, or you got to wait for a settlement. But 30% is well worth it to us to, to get these motherfuckers and get the word around to all the other snowflakes that they can't fucking do it. Um, I don't know if these are going to go on YouTube. YouTube will yank them. We hate, loathe, and detest YouTube. We've got a smattering of just a tiny handful of shit on there. 
just waiting for YouTube to flag it off because they will. It, it, I think they flag off every single piece of content that they've ever had on their in their system uh, just because they like to. I don't know. Um, they're becoming less and less credible in the world. I don't know if we'll put these on YouTube or even on the RSS. I'm not sure. They might only exist on our particular servers in the U.S. Okay, anyway, we're done. We're so far over now. Jesus. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, camera. Good evening. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>